Come on now, who's excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning? You got to make a little bit of noise. Come on, you're excited to be here. Man, it is so good to be with you guys today. Today is a historic day in our church. Today, for the very first time, we're super excited about this. Pastor and Al and I got together and we talked about doing a series together, going into Easter from Better Life Church and Emmanuel Baptist Church together combined, and we were going to go through the same seven statements of Jesus together, and we had this crazy idea. What if we got together and we were one church in six locations? He said, man, that would be awesome. Let's make it happen. And so today, that is happening right now. We are broadcasting to the Williamsburg campus, all the way to Richmond, to Moorhead, to Grayson to Ashland, Kentucky right now today. So let me ask you, who's excited to be in the house of the Lord today? Come on now, let's make some noise at all of our campuses. And so, man, what an awesome day that we could be one church in six physical locations. We also wanna welcome everybody online as well. You know, I talked to Pastor Allen about this. I mean, if you guys think about it, come on, Emmanuel, let's put one in London and Berea, Better Life Church, let's put one in Winchester and Mount Sterling and from Huntington, West Virginia, all the way down to the Tennessee borderline, we will have one big church to change the region with the gospel of Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing, y'all, that we, that God will use our churches to really reach and impact this entire region that I believe that can change a region that can change the world. And so, man, today's a very historic day for us to be one church in six locations. I'm so excited to be here at Emmanuel. You guys are a family to me. Uh, uh, pastor Allen and Robin's just unbelievable. Uh, he's my pastor. He's been with me through the darkest times of my life. He, he coaches me. He counsels me. I'm going to say right now, Emmanuel Baptist Church, you are blessed beyond measure to have Allen and Robin as your leaders here at Emmanuel Baptist. So I think let's give it up for our pastor. Man, he is amazing. I'm telling you. And the staff here is incredible. They're like family to me as well. And to be able to hang out with 1451 every year with the students, I'm telling you what, it's just an honor and a privilege to be part of what God is doing here at Emmanuel. And we're so excited to what God is doing up in the eastern northern part of the state through Moorhead and Ashland and Grayson too. So come on, we're going to continue this series. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. I'll be using the New American Standard Version this morning. So if you have your phone or your Bible app, you can go with me to the NASB uh, translation. And so we're in this series called Cross Equals Love. Now, we've done this series, Cross Equals Love, uh, in the past before, but we changed the message up. We thought it's a, it's a great brand. It's a series to put out there during the Easter time because the cross does equal love in a sense. And what really blessed my heart this morning on the way here to Emmanuel uh, Baptist Church is to see the yard signs out everywhere that cross equals love, not only here, but also in Moorhead and Ashland and Grayson as well. It was just so good to see the signs out that represent inviting people. Hey, come on, the cross equals love. We'd love for you to join us. And I never have preached through the seven statements of Jesus on the cross. And I thought, man, I've always wanted to do that. Wouldn't that be amazing? And so we decided to walk through that. And if you remember in week one, we talked about that when, when the, the soldiers begin to cast lots for Jesus' garments. So just in case if you missed that real recap, that Jesus was betrayed and uh, he was arrested. He went on trial. They found him innocent. And so they wanted to release him, but the religious people didn't want Jesus released. And so it was custom at this time that they would release one criminal. And so they said, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And the same people who said, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna to Jesus just immediately turned and said, let's crucify Jesus and release Barabbas. 
And so they handed Jesus over to be crucified, and he's crucified between two criminals, and, and they ripped off his clothes, and they begin to cast lots for his garments. And if you remember our first statement, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, yes, that could be implied to the Roman soldiers who had no idea what they were doing. It could be implied to religious people who were who, who put him falsely accused Jesus. Yes, that could be true. It could be prophetic to us. Father, forgive us, for they don't know what they are doing. But here's the point that we made. We talked about how God forgives us. And so if you're here and you're struggling with receiving the forgiveness of God, Maybe you're like, man, you know what? There's just that one sin in my life. I don't know if God can forgive me. I just don't know if God would love me. And I just, I just struggle with this one sin over and over and over. God forgives us. And we talked about that. I want to encourage you to go back to our, our, our line and watch that, how God can forgive us if you're struggling to receiving the forgiveness of God. And then if you know there were two crosses on each side, there's two criminals, and one criminal begins to hurl insults at Jesus, and the other one takes up for Jesus and the criminal looks over at Jesus and says, hey, today when you enter into your kingdom, listen, remember me. Remember me. And Jesus makes this statement, today you will be with me in paradise. I love that because you know what's so fascinating about that? The criminal couldn't come off the cross and make it right. The criminal couldn't come down and make a sacrifice to forgiveness of a sin. The criminal didn't come down and you say, hey, I'm gonna go make all the things right that I've wronged. I love it. So what is he saying? The criminal on his deathbed gave his life to Jesus. He could not come down and get baptized. He could not come down and start going to church. He could not come down and start reading his Bible. And that's what I love about Jesus. So many people want to add Jesus plus something for salvation, it's not Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus tithe, Jesus plus speaking tongues, Jesus plus attend church. It's Jesus plus Jesus plus Jesus. That's the only thing that will save you. That was a good point for someone at one of our six campuses to say amen. And so you don't add anything to the cross. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And we talked about, if you ever want to know what happens when you die, what happens the moment you die, the moment you breathe your last breath, what happens in your life? We talked a little bit about that, that if you're a believer, where do you go? If you're not a believer, where do you go? If that intrigues you, I would encourage you to go back and watch that. And then last week, we talked the, the third statement where Jesus looks at his mother, Mary, and he says, he says, Mary, your son, talking about the apostle John, and John, your mother, I want you to, to take her and care for her. Now, Jesus wasn't fulfilling prophecy, but he was obeying the law to honor his mother and his father. And, and what Jesus was doing, he was creating a new family here. This was adoption language we talked about last week. He said, Mary, your son, son, listen, your mother, take care of her. These are adoption terms that you're gonna become one family. And we talked about how God at the cross began to create a new spiritual family. It's called the church. Jesus will care for his mother's needs. We saw that. But Jesus will care for every one of our needs as well. And so this is a beautiful picture of a new family being birthed at the cross, a spiritual family where Jews and Gentiles will come together as one family through Jesus Christ. And today we continue with our fourth statement. So if you're ready to get started, we say this all the time, say let's go. All right, three of you. Come on now, let's go. Here we go. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 37 today as we read God's word together. It says this, above his head, this is Jesus, they put up the charge against him. When they would crucify someone, they would put the charge, what they did above their head. And here's what the charge was against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. At that time, two rebels were being crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. 
And those passing by were speaking abusively to him and shaking their head. And saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come on, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Wouldn't that be easy? Just prove it. But in the same way, the chief priests, also along with the scribe and the elders, were mocking him. Now listen, folks, these people, when it comes to the scripture, know the Bible backwards and forwards better than anybody else on the planet. These guys had the books of the Bibles memorized. They were so sharp, so smart. And this is what they said in verse 42. And this is extremely, extremely important. He saved others. Can he not save himself? He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we will believe. Prove it to us. Show us a sign, and we will believe. And then verse 43, he has trusted in God. Let God rescue him now. If God takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the two rebels had been crucified with him also, insulting in the same way. And verse 45, it said, from the sixth hour, that's noon, Darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. So from noon to 3 p.m., for three hours, it was completely dark. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and here is our fourth statement in this series of Cross Equals Love at all of our campuses. Here's the fourth statement he says. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now, this is Aramaic, so they interpret it, what that means for us. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Come on, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you so much for your word and how relevant it is. I pray, Holy Spirit, today that you would open our eyes this morning that we will see Jesus. For if we will see Jesus, we will never leave any of our campuses the same. For it's his name we ask and we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. So if we were in the first century and we were born into a Jewish family, the moment that we turn five, just kind of we do like here today, right? We go off to school. When we're five, we start in kindergarten. Where every five-year-old little boy and little girl would begin to go and they would begin to study the Torah. They would begin to study the scripture. Every boy, every little girl that was part of the Jewish customs that we will begin to study this and, and, and understand what the Torah talked about us in our life and what the law looked like. In fact, by the age of 10, you would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. You do everything you can to remember the Bible, just as pure honey, the Bible says, is written on our heart. The Word of God is like honey. We want to taste this, consume this, and be sweet to our lives. So every little boy, little girl from the age of five to ten would have been taught the Torah, would have been taught the law, and you would have known it. Just like today, you know, some kids a little bit more advanced and, and, and understand it. Some were a little bit not as fast to grasp it, but hey, as a kid, you would have a basic understanding of the first five books of the Bible, right, the, the ones that Moses wrote, we have the law in it, so as a practicing Jew, you would understand those things. Now, as a, as a parent, if you had a little boy, one of the greatest things that you would want for that little boy, hopefully, was to be able to grasp God's word, understand God's word, and maybe eventually become a teacher of God's word or a rabbi. So every little boy or every parent of a little boy someday would go, man, maybe Johnny just might be a good rabbi someday. Maybe Johnny will find favor in the Lord and just understand the scripture and understand what it truly means to be able to be a great chief priest, a great scribe, a great elder, a great rabbi someday to be able to teach the Torah, to teach the law, and continue on doing what we practice as Jews every single generation. 
And then by the age of 10, if you felt like, hey, it's time really to go on, now they would be open up the scriptures and you will learn some of what the prophet says. You begin to study from the books of Joshua to Malachi. And it was at this moment, usually the ladies, the girls who would continue to, to go on and get ready to follow in their mother's footsteps and to become a, a housewife and a mother and get prepared, preparation. What is it like to marry? Because a lot of times by the age of 13, most of them would have found who they're going to marry. And then someone was just obviously appointed, this is who you're going to be picked and who you're going to be with. And so the girls would branch off and begin, obviously having an understanding of the Torah. What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a wife? How do you care for a family? So they're being taught this, but the boy would say, you know what, let's go on and start studying Joshua and Malachi. And it was in these moments that as a boy, you begin to understand how to understand the scripture and then how you would debate scripture back and forth, back and forth. And so you would, when I would quote a scripture to you, you would quote a scripture back to me. This was called a remez. That's very important. We'll get to that just in a moment. And then at the age of 14, you basically, you had a choice. You could father, follow, in your, follow in your father's footprints, and, or you could, if you had what it takes, you may could go on and be a Harvard elite little Jewish boy to study the scriptures. The majority of the boys went and said, I'm just going to do what my dad did. We're going to be fishermen. That's what Peter was. We're going to be carpenters. That's what Jesus continued to do and, and put himself, you know, and provide for his family. And so whatever your family business was, that's what you pursued. But if you had what it takes, if you were just a super elite kid and you understand the scriptures and you really got it, now you became one of the Harvard elites, boy. And by the age of 15, you were so super smart when it comes all the way from Genesis to Malachi all in between. They didn't have scripture references like we do today. They didn't have chapter titles and verses to say, hey, remember that in Joshua chapter 2 verse 3. They had no numbering system. They studied the text as if it was written one big book over and over and over. And they knew exactly where the verses were. They knew exactly what was recalled. These guys were super, super smart. And that's what we see in the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and in the rabbis of that day. And now if you got to this point, your goal someday was to be this teacher, this rabbi, this scribe, someone that you could do. But you had to go through an apprenticeship. And until you was able to show yourself by the age of 30, you had to wait to the age of 30 to become a full bona fide rabbi. And it was by them, custom tells us, that a man fully is not matured into the age of 30. And there could be some legitimacy to that today, okay? I'm just throwing that out there right now. And so, and it was not to the age of 30 today they were fully mature enough to be a bona fide rabbi. In fact, the Bible tells us, it clearly says in Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, that a priest could not serve as a priest until they reached the age of 30. So it was off that custom that a rabbi obviously could not be mature enough until the age of 30. Now, why is this important to know this? Why is it extremely important for us to see this? Because here's what you gotta understand about Jesus. Yes, he is and was the son of God in this context. But I do not want you to miss this. He was also a bona fide rabbi. Jesus went through every single thing that every little Jewish boy would have went through, and he became a bona fide 
Rabbi, we see this over and over and over all through the New Testament. Remember at the age of 12, they went, this was when your confirmation comes. He went to the temple. They had their sacrifice. This is the first time that the 12-year-old committed his own first sacrifice for this family sins. And his mom and dad goes on and remember Jesus stays behind in the temple. It's past and they're going, where's baby Jesus? I can't find my son Jesus. And they all run back to the temple and what at their amazement what's going on. Jesus is sitting at the table. He's sitting in the temple with all the religious people, the wise rabbis and scribes and chief priests and elders and teachers. And what is he talking about? They were amazed at his questions and his answers. They were amazed. Why? Because he was trained in this technique, what was called a remez. Rabbis and chief priests argued and debated scripture against scripture. You would quote a scripture, I would quote back a scripture. You would say a statement, I would finish your statement with scripture. That is the technique that rabbis and scribes would go back and forth, back and forth. So when I recalled a verse, I was testing you to see how wise you were in the scripture. And do you know what verse was before it or what verse was after it? And so a, 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 a student, the master, the rabbi will look at their student and they will say something like this. Just give you an example. This is, this is the New Testament. Hey, when you know the truth, the truth will what? Say it. The truth will what? You just performed what would be called a remez. The, 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 the rabbi would make a statement. The student would speak back the rest of the verse over and over and over. And we see at the age of 12, Jesus was a master of it. He's among the wisest teachers of the law. And they were going, how in the world is this boy so sharp? He's, 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 he's debating with questions and answers. And you know what he says to his mother, right, and his father? He says, listen, I'm about to be about my father's business. This is what I'm all about. And that word remez, what you need to understand, it means this. It means to hide. It's a hidden meaning. It means to search and look for something over when it comes to the text. So what does Jesus do? He becomes a bona fide rabbi. Why does he start his ministry at the age of 30? Because that's when rabbis started their ministry. Jesus could start his ministry at the age of 12. He could went around and preached everything he preached. He could call followers. He could make disciples. He could heal people. He's Jesus. He's God. Why did he start at the age 30? Because in the first century, in the customs, rabbis could not be a bona fide rabbi until the age of 30. So Jesus begins his ministry right according to the law, according to the systems, according to the customs. He goes and he calls followers. Most rabbis only had one follower. Jesus calls 12. And so the people he called were rabbi rejects who didn't make it. And so he gives the ordinary fishermen and tax collectors and people who just work and say, hey, you, come follow me. Like, what? You want me to be your apprentice? You want me to follow you as a rabbi? And so all of a sudden the parents go, you better believe it. You go, you're going to follow Jesus. A rabbi has called you to follow him. These were rabbi rejects that came and they followed after Jesus. And if you remember, in just a little while, we'll study in the future here, when Jesus gets up out of the grave, Mary Magdalene runs up to him and what she falls to her feet and what does she say? Rabboni, which means my great master. And just for one more, just to throw this out there for context, just for one more statement, John chapter three. You remember Nicodemus, we call him Nick at night. He was the first Nick at night. Nicodemus comes and the Bible wants us to know that he was the teacher. Do not miss that definite article. He wasn't a teacher of the law of Israel. He was the chief teacher of Israel, and he steps in the presence of Jesus, and the first thing out of his mouth, he says, Rabbi, we know you must be from the Lord. 
The scripture is completely clear. He is a 100% the son of God, but he also was a bona fide rabbi. Now, you may ask, what in the world does this have to do with the text? Why is this important to know? Because we can't fully understand this fourth statement without knowing that context and that background information. So that was just all background. Y'all ready for the sermon? Because we can't interpret this without knowing that custom, what is happening in this text. So here's what I love to do. I love to do this, and I want to encourage you to do this. When you begin to study your Bible and read your Bible, here's one of the great things to do is put yourself in the story. Put yourself in the story. And don't think like 21st century, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe somebody's not tweeting about this. You know, I'm talking about put yourself in the story. Ask questions. What would this have been like in the first century? What did this mean to the people at the foot of the cross? Why would Jesus make these statements? How would they have understood that? Yes, when we look back in history, we can see now how Jesus was fulfilling things. But they didn't know that. So we can't assume that knowledge on them. So you have to put yourself in the story, be true to the text, exegete the text, and say, what is happening if I was in the story? So let's just think about it. It's Passover. You're a Jewish family. This is the most celebrated time of your life. You're reminded how you came out of the bondage of Egypt. You're reminded where people were Jews flocked all over the world to Israel at this time to come, no matter where, to facilitate, to facilitate in the Passover feast and all this. This is a time that you would come and the lamb would have been slain so that your sins could be forgiven at least for another year, right? This is a time that you brought your family in and you, and you celebrated with, with, with uh, remembering how you were once in bondage and now how that you have been set free. And you've heard about this man named Jesus. He claims to be God's son. You, 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 you hear that he's raised people from the dead. Blind people now see. Lame people now walk. And now you trek all the way back to, to Israel and you go, man, can I just get a glimpse of this guy named Jesus? Could he be the one that's been prophesied? Could he be the one that's going to deliver us from Rome? Because that's what they thought the Messiah was going to do, deliver them from Rome, not come just save them from their sin. Because they're Jews. They thought, hey, we're going to heaven anyway. And so is this the one that's really going to get us out of bondage again that we don't have to be under the Roman law anymore and under the Roman headship? Could he be the one? Hopefully we'll see Jesus when we get there. And then you rob the Israel and all of a sudden all this stuff's going on and say, did you hear what happened? Did you hear what happened? No, what's taking place? Hey, they, they're crucifying Jesus. Crucifying him? Why? They, I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was the one. Oh, where are they crucifying him? Out in Golgotha, Mount Calvary. You know the mountain that looks like a skull? That's where they're at. And you're like, I got to go see this. I got to, I thought he was sure. And so you make your way to Golgotha. You're making your way to Mount Calvary. And you're, you're getting close and you're hearing, you're seeing people crying. Like, why are they crying? And you, and you hear people throwing insults. Well, I thought he was the one. I guess it's going to be the next joker someday. He's not who he says he is. The son of God can't be crucified because the Bible says whoever hangs on a tree is going to be cursed. He's cursed already. He cannot be the son of God. But you're curious. And so you make your way to the cross and you get there. But here's something unique what's going on. It, it's, it's dark. It's been completely dark since noon. And you'd be like, man, is there a bad storm? I didn't get the weather today. Is there a storm coming? Is it a sandstorm? Well, that can't be happening because it's completely dark. Maybe it's an eclipse. That can't happen because it's, it's a full moon. Passover only takes place during a full moon. So it's a full moon. But it could be a total solar eclipse. Yeah, but they only last seven and a half minutes. And now it's completely dark for three hours. And you know something about darkness because you're a Jew. You know that darkness represents judgment. Darkness represents something is coming to an end. Darkness is a very bad omen. So something bad must be happening 
right now. I should be excited. It's Passover. They're going to they're sacrifice a lamb that's going to forgive me and my family and my sins. I should be celebrating what God delivered us from the bondage of Egypt. But there's something within me going, man, something's not right here. Why is it dark? Why are people crying? Why are they crucifying this man who's done nothing wrong? I heard Pilate and Herod said he didn't do nothing wrong. So why do they do this? They released Barabbas. Did you hear about Barabbas? He's like one of the most wicked sinners. Why would they do this? And so you're curious and you make your way to the cross and you find your way there. And now you're starting to hear people scream insults at him. And now you start to see the chief priests and the scribes and they're in their robes. And they're standing there with their chest up as if they'd done something great. These religious elite watching this man be crucified. Someone whispers and said, yeah, there's his mother. There's one of his followers, John. There's some ladies who helped take care of Jesus. Yeah, they're over there. You, she bless her heart. Could you imagine one of the worst things ever to, for a mother to see their child suffer and they can do nothing about it? They could not do one thing about it. And if anyone could have saved Jesus, truly it could have been his mother, right? His mother could have said, he's a liar. Everything he said is wrong. It's false. Everything he said is not true whatsoever. Trust me, I raised him. He, he just made all this up. Get him down. Get him down. He is not the Messiah. But her silence speaks so loudly because it wasn't just her son. He was her savior. And she was silent. And now you'll look close enough where you can hear the scribes. And now you can hear what's taking place and the chatters back and forth. They're saying, did you hear what he said? He said he could rebuild the temple in three days. That's impossible. It took him 46 years to rebuild the second temple. So when you put yourself in the story and you begin to ask questions, you begin to see what's going on, it begins to come alive. And when you got the background context information, now you understand a little bit more what is taking place. And so what do you hear? Now you hear. Now let's go back real quick to verse 41. The chief priests with the scribe, the elders were mocking him. So now you've made your way up and you're kind of in the distance, but you can hear the chief priest. You see the, cru the, the, the criminals being crucified. You see Jesus in the middle and you're sitting here scratching your head and it's dark and you hear the chief priest. And what do they say? Look what he says in verse 42. He saved others, but he cannot save himself, kind of in a question standpoint. Is he the king of Israel? <laughs> if so, come down from the cross and watch this statement. We will believe. Come down, and we will believe. And then do not miss verse 43. Verse 43 in the New American Standard Translation is in all caps. The reason why the translator puts the, this next text in all caps is to let me as the English reader to know that what we're about to read is a direct quote from the Old Testament. And so that's one reason I love about the NASB. If you're a great, if you want to be a Bible student and if you really want to study and get into word-for-word translation, now when you're reading, you start, you see all caps in your Bible right here, and that all caps should make you say, wait a second, wait a second. They want me to know that this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. So the chief priests, the elders, the scribes begin to hurl Scripture at the author of Scripture. And look what they said. He trusted in God, let God rescue him now. If he takes pleasure, if he delights in him, for he said, now watch this, I am the son of God. The chief priest knew exactly what Jesus claimed, that he was the son of God. Now, what did they quote? So if you're studying the Bible, this is a good Bible study. Come on, there's a point. Just hang tight. There's a point. So when you're studying the scripture, you go back to what do they quote? And you look down your Bible reference, it's going to tell you where they quoted. And you go back to that reference, and they quote Psalms 22. 
verse seven through eight. Now, what is Psalms 22? Psalms 22 is the prophecy of the one. Psalms 22 is the prophecy of the Messiah. In fact, Psalms 22, 23, and 24 is the Messiah trilogy. It's the one that every little Jewish boy and girl would memorize. It's the one that you were told when you were age five, when you went to, to the law and you heard the rabbis and the scribes teach, the Messiah is going to come someday. The Messiah is going to deliver us. The anointed one, the Christ, the Son of God, he is going to come someday. And every little Jewish boy and every little Jewish girl waited for that day for the Messiah to arrive. Anybody who knew anything of the text standing there around the cross, when they quoted this scripture, you automatically knew what would come next because you were taught the scripture, especially Psalms 22, verse 7 and 8. And listen what it says. All who see me, this is Jesus. All who see Jesus, derive Jesus. They sneered at Jesus. They shook their heads at Jesus saying, turn him over to the Lord. Let God save him. Let him rescue him. Let God rescue Jesus because he finds pleasure in him. He delights in him. Now, why would they quote scripture? Because they're chief priests. And they hurl insults at each other because they think they know the text better than the person in front of them. And so they begin to haul, scream scripture at the author of scripture. And guess what happens? Rabbis and chief priests always debated and argued with Scripture back with Scripture, with Scripture back with Scripture. And then Jesus on the cross screams back Scripture. Why? Because he's a rabbi. And you know, you got to understand this. When it comes to the cross, you die by suffocation. And so for Jesus to exclaim seven statements from the cross means he would have to put all of his weight on the nails that pierce his feet pull himself completely up to scream out any words because then he would immediately fall back. And he pushes up and he screams, Eli, 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 Sabachthani. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And folks, I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus was not asking God a theological question. Jesus was not asking, God, why have you left me alone? Why have you turned your face upon me? Why have you abandoned me on the cross? Why did you leave me here to suffer? Because with just a little bit of analysis, that just really doesn't make sense. Because God can't forsake God. God the Father can't forsake God the Son. God the Son can't forsake God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit can't forsake God the Father. If they could, then the Trinity is done with, and what we believe in the one triune God is gone. That there's one and three persons. God can't forsake God. So then why in the world would Jesus scream from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't asking a question. He was making a statement. He wasn't asking a question, God, why have you abandoned me? He was making a statement to everyone who was standing there who knew the text. And if you notice, it's in all caps. So what did Jesus quote from the cross back to the scribes and to the chief priests. He quotes Psalms 22. He quotes Psalms 22, verse 1. You see, Jesus knew everything. He says, me and the Father are one. When you see me, you see the Father. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. We are one. Jesus knew all things. He knew he would suffer. He knew this was coming. In fact, he asked God, would you take this away from me? Take this cup. And the heavens were silent. He was sweating blood because he knew he was about to go through this. So he's not questioning God. 
why have you left me? He was making a statement. He was pointing them back to Psalms 22, verse 1, because God would never forsake his son. I'm going to show you that just in a moment. And God would never forsake you. He would never forsake you. And so he goes and he's making the statement. And look at Psalms 22, verse 1, and it says this. Look what he says. David writes this. It's a prophetic verse for, this, for, for the Messiah to come. And look exactly what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They, they quote Psalms 22. He quotes back Psalms 22. You see the context? That's why you got to know that. He says, wait, I am who I say I am. If you keep reading Psalms 22, guess what happens? He rescues me. You think God's not going to rescue me? He does rescue me. He rescued me. He comes and he saves me. He is near to me. He hasn't turned away from me. So if you're going to throw Psalms 22:7 at me, I'm going to throw back Psalms 22:1 back at you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you get that context, you understand he's answering their question. Is this the one? He can't save himself. Is God going to rescue him? And if you keep reading verse 3, 5 in Psalms 22, guess what? God does rescue. He comes to the brokenhearted. He feels like he might be distant, but he comes quickly on. He comes to rescue him. And here's what Jesus is saying on the cross for everybody to hear. And remember, you made your way up to the cross, and you know the scriptures. And he quotes Psalms 22, 1, and here's what he says. I am the awaited Messiah. I am the suffering one. Keep reading Psalms 22 and you will see exactly everything that was prophesied about me in this moment and this hour is happening. My hands have been pierced. The Roman soldiers cast lots for my clothing. It's, it's here. Just keep reading the prophecy and you will realize that I am the one so that you can believe. Do you believe? He was fulfilling scripture. And so you may be sitting here and going, okay, pastor, thanks for the Bible lesson great historical context, but what in the world does that have to do with me? See, Jesus knew that 2,000 years later that we would be one church in six locations today. And he knew that he, you would be here. You may say, man, someone bribed me to came. I saw a sign and I came. Somebody said, man, they're going to take me out and give me some good Mexican food when this is over with. I don't know. You know, why in the world does someone bring me here? Listen to me. God woke you up and brought you here today so when you hear the statement my God my God why have you forsaken me not that you ask why is he questioning a theological question to his heavenly father but that is to point every single one of us at six locations back to the text back to Psalms 22 verse 22 listen to what it says I will proclaim your name how can you proclaim your name if you're dead he's not he got up out of the grave the prophecy keeps fulfilling I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly, and I will praise you. You who fear the Lord will praise him. All your descendants of Jacob will glorify him. And stand in awe of me, the one that you see hanging on the cross. See, they would have known this. All your descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor scorned the suffering and the afflicted Messiah. Then don't miss this. Look what it says. Nor has he hidden his face from him. He will never turn his face from his son. He will never deny his son. He will never rebuke his son. He's not asking a theological question. He's making a statement to point me and you 2,000 years later back to the scripture to let us know that he is the one. And when he cried for help, he heard me. You see, Jesus did come down from the cross lifeless, but he got up out of the grave victorious. For me and for you. You see, 
No, now what we know, he did come down from that cross. He did get up out of the grave. He is the king of kings. God did rescue him. And watch this. He is the son of God. Why? So that we would believe. And I want you to hear how Psalms 22 ends. This is a sneak peek for in two weeks when we finish up. In two weeks, we're going to make one of the statements, the sixth statement. Did you know here at the end of Psalms 22, he quotes the sixth statement, and he bookends the psalm that is written about the awaited Messiah. And he quotes those scriptures so that you and I would be students of the scriptures and go back and go, what is he saying? Here's what he's saying. I am who I say I am. I am the Messiah. I am the one. I'm the one you've been waiting on. I'm the son of God. And in Psalms 22 verse 30, it says a posterity, which means a generation, a full of children from generations and generations will serve him. And it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and they will declare his righteous to a people who will be born. That's me and you. Because we haven't been born yet in this text. He said, they will, be, they will hear about me. The ones who've not even been born yet, they will eventually hear about me for generations and generations. And what will we hear about it? Look what it says at the end of verse 31. That he has performed it. Literally, that he has accomplished it. You know what it literally means? That it is finished. And Jesus quotes this on the sixth statement, and we're going to see that. So, so you're saying, okay, what does that have to do with me? Jesus brought you here today so that you would know and you would have a chance through the inerrant and fallible word of God to see that when he hung on the cross, he did that for you. And he did that for me. And you remember what the chief priest says? If you'll come down, if God will rescue you, we will believe. As Paul Harvey said, we know the rest of the story. He came down. He got up out of the grave. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the Son of God. And so the scribe says, if that is true, we will believe. I've got one point for you this moment, this morning. And the point, listen, is so, it's so easy, but yet so profound that it don't even need to be on the screen. Here's the question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Maybe the better question would be this. Do you have the right belief? Because even the demons believe. See, if you say you believe in Jesus, but it hasn't changed your life, listen to me. You have the wrong belief. I know that for a fact. My eighth grade year, I walked the aisle, said a prayer, and was baptized, and I never met Jesus. I went through the motion. My senior year in high school, I walked the aisle, said a prayer, and I was baptized again, but I never met Jesus. It wasn't to a junior in college that my eyes were open, so I saw Jesus for who he really is. If you, that word belief means this, that you believe in something so wholeheartedly, that you believe in something with everything within you that it alters and it changes your life and you don't care about the consequences. So, so many people walk around and say they believe in Jesus, but it hasn't changed your life. If you truly believe, it will change you. And Jesus brought you here today for me to ask you this one question. Do you believe? So here's what I'm going to ask us to do right now. All of our locations, would you please just bow your head just for a moment. 
And in light of what the Holy Spirit hopefully has pricked your heart with this morning, ask yourself this question, do you believe? In fact, two things. For the believer this morning, let me speak to the believers. I hope that God's word edified you and encouraged you and strengthened your faith to see the prophetic statements when Jesus says that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To point you as a student of the text, as a follower of Jesus, back to Psalms 22. In fact, listen to me. Go home. Every one of you, go home and read Psalms 22. It won't take you four minutes to read through it. Go home and read it and look at what we've been going through and exactly what's happening on the cross is being fulfilled in Psalms 22. Come on, math people. You tell me, what is the probability of all the prophecies being fulfilled in one person named Jesus? It's astronomical. It's impossible. So as believers, that should encourage our faith that Jesus is who he says he is. And for you here today who know about Jesus but you never surrender your life to him, today's the day. We're not promised tomorrow. And so right where you sit, the chief priests and the scribes says, we will believe if this is what happens. And I'm here today to proclaim to you, according to God's word, according to the truth, it happened. Do you believe? Do you believe? And if that's you, right where you sit, at all of our locations today, all six of them, from Williamsburg all the way over to Ashland, Kentucky, Today, if you truly, truly believe and your eyes have been opened to see that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came for you, that He died for you, in your place and in my place, then would you surrender your life to Him? So if that's you, I would love for you to cry out to Him right now. Now listen to me. Saying a prayer will not save you. But my lips can proclaim what my heart declares. And if my heart declares that Jesus Christ is the Lord, He is the Messiah, he is who he says he is. Then my lips can proclaim it. So if that's you, right where you said, maybe you're watching online, doesn't matter where you are, pray with me to say, Jesus, I believe. I believe you came for me. I believe you died for me. And I believe you got up out of the grave for me. And today I repent of my sins. And I put all my faith and trust in you. Now, as best as I know how, help me follow you for the rest of my life. Now, folks, listen to me. I just believe that the Lord is speaking to people. And if that's you today and you gave your life to Jesus, in just in a moment, host or your campus pastor is going to come up. And they're going to share with you your next steps. They're going to share with you, if you made a decision, what you can do. Because when you make a decision, it's, it's no private decision. It's a public declaration. You have nothing to be ashamed of. Let the world know what Jesus is doing in your life and what he did in your life today. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how relevant it is. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus on the cross, suffering, agony, and pain, points us back to the scriptures just to encourage our faith that he is who he says he is. That he is the awaited Messiah. And I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you would protect our hearts. The enemy wants to come and snatch the seed that was replanted. But 
but God, that you would cause it to grow. A love for your word. A, a, a faith that's been strengthened from the prophecies of your word. That you are who you say you are. Father, I can't wait to see and hear the stories how you're changing people's lives today. One church, six locations. For it's your name we ask and we pray. Amen.